Our epistle lesson is found in 1 Peter. We are at the close of chapter 1, verse 13, and reading through chapter 2, verse 3. Listen carefully to God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest In the last times, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to hear good news today, and it is you who proclaims good news through the pages of Scripture before us. And we ask, God, that you would lead us into all understanding and guide us into the truth because we're dependent upon your spirit to do so. So we ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Special thanks to those who showed up just after the crack of dawn this morning to assist with our first setup here in the Ramada Inn. There were many unknowns as we entered the morning, a good plan. Your staff is a group of pretty incredible human beings with gifts that made this a pretty seamless transition, troubleshooting all kinds of problems from the sound gremlins that have also made the move with us (laughs) from the Christ Church Sanctuary to the Ramada Inn uh, to set up and making sure our children are safe and well taken care of. It's a wonderful thing, an opportunity that we have in front of us in which for seven months we'll be here at the Ramada. And we've talked a great deal about our exile here at the Ramada Inn and what that's going to look like, and that that will require every one of us to shift our expectations, because everything will be different. It will be different for a time. We're living between two events, a pretty traumatic move that required a lot of effort. Over 35 years in a church, you collect a lot of junk. We have discarded almost all of that junk, (laughs) 
And then we're looking forward to moving back into a building that's freshly renovated and set up for life for the next 25 years. And so we have things that we anticipate. And so we have to shift and expectations, but we have things that we're also anticipating. There's also things about the present right now that are comfortable and homey. It's the same pulpit in front of you, the same rails that you kneel at monthly when we take communion. Baptism will go in the same manner as always at Christ Church. And so it's a fairly complicated array of things. There are things that are familiar. We will be shifting our expectations. We have things that we're looking forward to. And this is actually exactly what Peter is doing as he pastors this congregation, a congregation that was dispersed across a very broad geographical area, representing many, many different churches, because they too live between two major events, but two major events that are far more significant than a renovation of a church building. They live between the event of Jesus' death and resurrection and then his return. And Peter writes this letter, and in verse 17, he spells it out for us because he's explaining how we are then on the other side of the resurrection to conduct ourselves, and he explains how we are to conduct ourselves in the time of our exile. He's explaining that this is what the Christian life is to look like, that when we have been intersected by the mercy of God, when we've met the living Jesus, and our sins have been forgiven, and we have been born again, then what? What is life to look like? When we have tasted and when, when we have seen that the Lord is good, what, is our, what shape is our life supposed to take? In the chapter that we have in front of us, God gives us four instructions, four commands that are to shape us on the other side of tasting that the Lord is good. We'll work through each of these four, and then we'll return to discuss how that is to happen. But the first thing that Peter goes to about what life on the other side of having met Jesus looks like is that we're to fix our hope on future grace. If you follow with me in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to catch the nuance because Peter explains very clearly that we have met the mercy and grace of God already in Jesus. When God brings us to new life by the power of the Spirit and the hearing of the preaching of the Word, as we saw earlier in chapter 1, we have experienced the grace of God. And yet he's also saying that there is grace yet to be had. And set the revelation of Jesus Christ, he speaks of the return of Jesus. And that we are to set our hope on that future event. This is what the Christian life is to look like. He actually gives two things that modify that. He says that you're to prepare your minds for action. The literal words here are you are to gird up your loins. Now, we don't wear the same clothing that they wore in the first century. But when you had to be ready for action, literally you had to gather up your robes and... and Sorry, the image is just too much. But had to tuck them into your belt. Because if you were going to do something physical, you didn't need all the flow going on. And so this is the image that Peter gives that we're to gird up our loins. And he says you're to be sober-minded. That is to be self-controlled. 
And those two things are then pointing to what he commands us to do, to set our hope fully on the grace. And so we need to be ready for activity. Perhaps the metaphor today is you need to roll up your sleeves. And guys, where this is pointing us is that the work of setting our hope on the grace that is to come when Jesus returns is hard work. It takes effort. It takes discipline. Oftentimes when we think of hope, we just think of it as something that's sentimental or wishful thinking. But the Christian has far more than wishful thinking in their hope. That our great hope is that Jesus, when he returns, will undo the sadness and the tragedy of our world. That he'll purge it from sin. That he'll raise the dead and make the world what it was always intended to be. He will be the one who makes the world great again. And only him, by the way. That's where we're to fix our hope. And it takes effort. It takes diligence. It takes hard work. Now, this past week, as we were enduring the move out, there was one particular point where Andy Ziff, our music director, and myself were in the dumpster. Literally. The trash people had come, and we needed them to come with greater regularity, but something was clogging the dumpster, and we knew exactly what it was. We had put some contraband in the dumpster. There was an old large desk that had been put there, and it was then blocking the trash from coming out. As we um, went through the various materials that were in the dumpster, we looked at each other and said, well, it can't get any worse than this. <laughs> it doesn't get any worse. There's no lower place to fall than in the dumpster here. And then we also looked at each other and said, but isn't it going to be great? <laughs> it's going to be great seven months from now. And friends, that's the simple power of future hope. When we have something out in front of us that we know is going to then minister to us in the present certain difficulties and pains, and that's what God gives you, and that's why he commands us to fix our hope on future grace. Because yes, we have met the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, but all the grace that is coming to the world in Jesus is not here yet. That doesn't come until he returns to fix the world, to restore it and renew it. And so we fix our hope on future grace. The second thing, we are to pursue holiness. Follow with me in verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, speaking of the life prior to Christ. But as he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, unfortunately, when we hear these words about, as God commands us, to pursue holiness, many people struggle to hear them rightly. For many, when they hear the command to be holy, they take it as an invitation from God to become legalistic. Where many people go immediately is, oh, I am supposed to earn my way into God's favor by being good enough, that I have to be holy. And that's simply not the logic that Peter uses here, nor is it the logic of the Old Testament. But rather, there's a statement of grace on the front of this as obedient children. So as children, you've been made children of God. Now you are to live in the family pattern. And God is actually going to supply grace, as we'll see later. But we are to pursue being a people who are set apart because 
We have been intersected by the grace and mercy of God. We've been brought into his family very graciously. Now, one of the other things that frequently happens in the church when we talk about holiness is we tend to divide this duty in one of two directions. Some define it by their devotion to God, that is, by their knowledge of theology and perhaps their worship of him. And then others tend to define it by devotion to their personal piety, focusing on their moral purity. But when God claims us, when he calls us his children, when he forgives our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ, there's an important observation to make. Note what Peter says, be holy in all your conduct. And so when we want to divide it out, when we want to make it about theology and right worship, or when we want to make it about inward personal purity, we're actually doing a disservice to what true holiness is. That true holiness always involves those two tables of the law, what it means to love God, And so, yes, it involves knowledge of God and the worship of God and our prayer lives before God. But then true holiness always involves the second table as well, as what it means to love our neighbor and what it means to keep an inward purity and to conduct ourselves morally in a way that's appropriate. And we can never allow holiness to be divided out in that way, just as we can never allow holiness to become something legalistic in which we're gaining God's favor. And you'll note that Peter instructs the people that they are not to be conformed to their former ignorance. He says, your life before you met Christ, prior to the experience of God's grace and forgiveness, the shelf life on that life has expired. Now, there was a phenomenon. When I had gone off to college, I returned home my first summer, and I was asking a a friend, have you seen John? And he said, yeah, John's around. And he said, he is in East Carolina rampant. And I looked at him, I said, what are you talking about? And I need to explain to you something about my hometown. Greenville, North Carolina, it's not a big place, but it's the home to a university, East Carolina University. It's also the home to Junius H. Rose High School, where we all went. And for some reason, our high school had the mascot of a rampant. It was a cross between a lion and an eagle. And so we were the Rohai Rampants. That's what we went by. And there was a joke inside our hometown that when someone graduated from Rose High and then went on to be a student at East Carolina, but then when they returned to all the football games, all the baseball games, even sometimes going to the prom, After they graduated, guess what term they got? You were in East Carolina rampant. It was not a good term. It was derogatory. It was intended to be an insult. What they were saying is you have not moved on. And it's appropriate for you to move on. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. When you've met the grace and mercy of God, it's appropriate for you to move on. It's time to put that former ignorance behind you. It's beneath you. Yes, you can do it, but it's inappropriate. It's time to move on. Pursue being set apart. Pursue being holy because this is what God has determined for you as his children. This is the family pattern. Now, the third piece of instruction that Peter gives us is that we are to walk in love. If you follow with me in verse 22, 
having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And that is that when we've been singled out by God to experience his favor and his grace, we are not singled out just as individuals, but we're singled out with a community. And that community that we walk with, we are to be in a loving relationship with, with pure affection for one another. And this means that our life together, our Christian faith, is not something that we do in isolation. It's not something we do by ourselves. We don't simply come to church to get something, but rather we become part of something, living in a loving relationship with one another. So what does it require? Frequently, in thinking about what it requires, our tendency as sinful and broken people, is to think about what others aren't doing to fulfill this command. We think of the ways that people are perhaps coming up short of loving me well. This is what it would look like, and if people only understood, then we would really have real community. But that's not Peter's point. He's not inviting us here that we judge and put burdens on others. What he's inviting us to do is that we ourselves put away the vices that we find in on, inside of our own character and our own way of relating to others that destroy relationships and community, that hinder those, that keep those back. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. So, after he has given the command to love, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander. Now, have you ever seen community flourish where there's malice? Hatred. Have you ever seen community flourish where there's deceit? Can you have a genuine community if you can't trust the truthfulness of what someone says? Have you seen community flourish where you have hypocrisy? What about envy? What about slander? No, it doesn't flourish. And so the command, the claim that God puts on each of our lives is that we take that seriously. That we put those things to death that are inside of us that keep community from flourishing and growing and keep us from loving one another. The final thing, piece of instruction that we have for life in exile is that we are to crave what nourishes our spiritual lives. If you follow in chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This final claim that God places upon us for our time of exile is that we would crave after the right things, that our spiritual lives are such that we need constant nurture and nourishment. That it's not as if at conversion you have a battery installed that has lithium inside of it that's just going to run on to eternity. That's not the way it works. But rather, he says, like a newborn baby, crave spiritual milk, pure spiritual milk. That is milk that is fitting and appropriate for where you are in your walk with Jesus. And that we are to long for that. Because here's the truth. 
And every one of us over 40 understand this. You become exactly what you crave. You crave bad food and you know exactly what happens. You consume that bad food and that bad food becomes you. And friends, in our spiritual lives, we have to crave the right things. We do become what we crave. And God wants to set our appetite and commands us to set our appetite and to set our diet on the right things. And so we're to crave the word of God, the preaching of the gospel. We're to crave worship and fellowship with Christians. We're to crave holiness. We're to crave setting our hope on the future. All these things. But this all raises a tremendous question. Because we've talked about four things that can be quite overwhelming. Setting our hope on the future grace to be realized. Doing that alone, especially when we have experienced disappointment and frustration. And we've experienced what may feel like isolation from God. That alone can be enough. But then we're also told to love people who sometimes are really difficult. And we're told to give ourselves to them and to be sacrificial with them. We're told to pursue holiness that can feel like a burden that's just too much. And then we're told to crave the right things. And the very practical question for us is how? What sustains that? What enables that? How are we supposed to pursue those four different things? Now, throughout this passage, Peter has been conducting a secondary argument. He has been pointing us to how this all happens, how it plays out. If you look at the very first verse, verse 13, you'll notice the first word. What is it? Therefore. And we always have to ask the question, why is that there? Because this is concluding something. And the therefore is present because he's pointing us to what has just been said. And Peter has just been laying out how we are to set our hope on our inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled. And that we're to set our hope there. And then so he commands us once again. But this is the logic of the Bible that we find over and over and over. That we're commanded by God. We're giving imperatives by God only after we have been given grace by God. The Ten Commandments work the same way. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. This is always the order of how we receive commands from God. It's never without first having interacted with his grace. And so this is the logic that Peter uses. I want to walk you through five different dimensions of that grace and mercy. If you look with me in verse 13, first, he does point us to the future, the grace that lies ahead. And so he's putting grace out that will be revealed when Jesus returns, and he does so in order to compel you. He wants to inflame your imagination about what the creation will look like when it's scrubbed clean from the curse of sin. For you to think about what your character will be and how all things will flourish and what Christian community will look like when it's not compromised by sin. And he uses this as a compelling force that you would pursue after obedience. The second thing is he points us once again to the future, but he points us to a strange event that many find threatening 
He points us to the evaluation of the final day. If you look in verse 17, he says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Verses like this in the New Testament raise many questions. And people associate the final day of judgment with fear. And yet Peter is using that as a positive motivator for us. Why? Because there is no condemnation for the Christian. And on the final day of judgment, there is a day of vindication. In which our faith in Jesus and then the good works that follow that faith will all be on display. But he does use it as a moment of accountability and motivation. Because we know that all things are going to be laid plain. All the deeds done in secret, all the secret things are going to be there and they're going to be out in the open. And so he uses that to motivate us to follow after obedience. Now the third thing that he does here is he points us into the past. He points us to the ransom that has been paid by Jesus Christ. Follow with me in verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And the way that he argues here is pursue holiness because you have been ransomed. It's that logic once again. Because this has happened, then that because you have been redeemed, because the price has been paid on your behalf, because you have been won, because Jesus Christ has shed his blood and you've been washed in that blood, forgiven, redeemed, ransomed. This is the reason for pursuing obedience. Now the fourth way that Peter argues with us is he points us once again into the past, but this time he doesn't point you to a moment in time. Rather, he points us to God's decision prior to the foundations of the world. Follow with me in verse 20. He was foreknown, speaking of Christ, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. And he is once again arguing with us, compelling us towards obedience to draw us in that direction, saying that Jesus Christ was set apart before the foundation of the world. And he was set apart for you because we've already heard Peter explain in chapter 1 that by the foreknowledge of God, we've come into an encounter with the grace of God. And so God determined that Jesus would be the Savior of the world, and God determined that he would be your Savior. And Peter lays this out once again in the great mystery of the providence of God to compel you and to argue with you. Don't fight that determination. God has assigned you to his family, so get along with what it looks like to live in that family. And the final way that Peter argues with us about pursuing obedience and why we are able to is he points us to present reality, to our new birth. If you follow towards the end of the passage in verse 23... Excuse me, in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Peter explains, you have been brought to new life. 
Because a seed has been planted in you. Something that was outside of you happens to you just very objectively. It comes upon you. God brings us to new life. And since that happened, then behave like this. Follow what he says in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. He's saying, since that has happened, now you are to walk in love. And this is the logic of God's grace. It motivates, it compels, it sustains. And the only way that we can live the Christian life in which we are attempting to set our hopes, that we're pursuing holiness, that we're living a life of love, that we're craving the right things, is for the grace of God to be active and alive in our hearts. Augustine says it perhaps best. He says, God, command what you will. But then he follows it with, give what you command. Augustine knew that God had to give the grace to follow the command. And Peter argues with us that God gives every grace, pointing to the past, pointing to the present, pointing to the future, all the ways to sustain this life in which we follow after God in the midst of exile. And so let's pray and let's ask him for that help. Father, we do confess all of our weakness. And we acknowledge when we receive these commands that we can count the ways in which we fall short. And yet your grace overwhelms us and overcomes us as you announce grace from the past, even into eternity, and you announce grace into the future, all for all eternity, a gracious and merciful God sustains us through the time of exile. So help us. May we pursue what it means to be set apart. May we pursue setting our hope on the future things. May we pursue what it looks like to love one another. And may we pursue craving the right things. Help us, God. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.